Good evening, and welcome to the Ecology Hour. I'm your host, Chad Swimmer. Today on the show, we are going to be talking about water, specifically the Reservoir Project that the city of Fort Bragg is moving forward on. We'll hear from Fort Bragg Mayor Bernie Norvell, ecologists Teresa Schollers and Peter Bay about what the current status of the project is, the ecology of the site the city purchased, and possible alternative solutions to what looks like an unpredictable future of water scarcity one year and excess the next. We will also hear from Carrie Durkee of the Grassroots Institute about something you can do to improve the situation of native plants on the Mendocino headlands. We will get to all of that after listening to a little more of Gene Parsons, Banjo Dog, recorded live at the Arena Theater way back in the year 2000. Last November, the Fort Bragg City Council unanimously approved a plan to purchase a 586-acre parcel of land from the Mendocino Coast Recreation and Park District for $2,420,000 in order to build three reservoirs on around 30 acres of the land. The city hopes to establish a community forest on the remaining 550 acres, preserving the habitat there through a deed restriction or conservation easement. The reservoirs would projectedly store a total of 44 million gallons of water in a location that connects conveniently to treatment plant infrastructure and high-power PG&E transmission lines. The city would rely on existing water sources, Waterfall Gulch, Newman Gulch, and the Noya River to fill these tanks, particularly during high-flow periods in the winter. Catchments for rainwater would also be included. One wrinkle in the new reservoir plan, according to the Mendocino Voice article where this first came out, is that the parcel the city would acquire supports some of the most sensitive natural communities in the state and in some cases the world. While the city has not yet submitted an official plan or any CEQA or environmental impact reports for approval, they are moving forward. Let's hear first from Fort Bragg Mayor Bernie Norvell. Bernie, thanks for taking the time to join us this afternoon on the Ecology Hour. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you, and uh, thank you for the opportunity. Can you tell us where the city is right now with this project? Yeah, so we've, we've purchased the property. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we used uh, water enterprise funds. Some of the things that we're actively doing now is we're working on annexation, mm-hmm. um, which I think is going to be fairly easy because we do own a piece of property where our reservoir is, so it's contiguous for us, mm-hmm. which, which would be nice. And then we're working with... Um, for operations plan on how to use um, existing water sources to fill the ponds, the reservoirs. Mm-hmm. We're working on uh, biological studies, and then we're doing. Um, we were. I think there'll be an RFP presented to council for approval at the next meeting, and then to to do a lot of the services, and then and you know give the public an opportunity to speak on the project. Our operations crew and maintenance crew right now are are patrolling the property. Certain days a week. I don't want to say which which days for obvious reasons. Um, and, and we're doing a little bit of that on ATVs on the roads, and then also via drone. And then we'll probably eliminate a lot of the ATV use once we get our own drone, and we'll use that. What were the considerations when purchasing 
property after MCRPD had had its own plans probably um, stopped because of the ecological communities that are on the property? Uh, you know, I, I don't think we really gave any concern to that. I think a lot of what they, I see it kind of differently. Not that they wouldn't have ran into a lot of problems in that field. Um, mm -hmm. I, think, I think they got stopped for other reasons. Mm -hmm. um, but they were looking to use the entire property. Yeah. We're looking to carve out probably between 30 and 40 acres mm -hmm. next to where our current reservoir is mm -hmm. and, and develop three more reservoirs of equal size, which are hopefully going to give us about 140 days, um, combine all four of about 140 days of water. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we have big plans of putting, um, you know, you have to shade it, right, to uh, yeah. prevent algae growth and evaporation. And, and we're, there's a main transmission line that runs right through that property. Yeah. So we're looking to do, um, or part of the plan is to do um, floating solar panels on the reservoirs. Uh -huh. And then we think we'll be able to produce uh, enough energy to um, feed back into the system to um, certainly run that facility and some of our other. Okay. Has the city explored the possibilities in trying to create more water of wastewater diversion back into a system that would only be for landscape use? So there's one council member, council member Alvin Smith, that has brought this up once or twice. It's not on our list of priorities. Um, I think we have about a hundred and I think it's $138 million in uh, SIT projects right now, capital improvement projects. Yeah. That's not one of them. Um, <laughs> that, that's a big one. Right. Not not only we're not quite there with our wastewater to be able to send it back out. We're getting close. But then the next thing would be infrastructure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Getting the, the purple pipe out to the facilities. I, I just had a conversation with a council member um, on Friday from Ukiah and I asked them about theirs because I know they just got another big grant. And he his understanding was 100 percent of, of their purple uh, pipe is used for um, egg. Mm hmm. Which, you know, of course, we don't have. Um, but, you know, I can see something in the future. Uh, it would make more sense to get it up to the schools. Yeah. And, you know, and irrigate the fields there. But a lot of what they do is on well water. But it's it, it would be a big project. My, my recommendation when Council Member Robin Smith brought it up the last time uh, was that we, as a council, felt that um, our public works department was not overwhelmed, but their, their basket was full. And that if, if this was something, you know, because she's got four more years, um, if this was something that she wanted to pursue and something to hang her hat on, that she should go out and start the legwork. There's, yeah. There's no, there's no argument there. Right now, we you know, we send it out to sea. So it would make more sense to send it back up the hill. Yeah. Yeah. And just because we have a lot of water this year, it's a very uncertain future on that front. Well, the crazy thing is nobody's talking water anymore, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's over. And it's just like, no, it's not. <laughs> you know, we will be back. You know, we're, we're kind of hoping, um, we're talking to the county a little bit about um, them helping fund the three reservoirs, um, mm -hmm. giving, giving them possible access to one. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't been part of those conversations, but I have talked to our public works director about it. And he has had um, initial conversations with them um, because I'm sure you'll remember that we, you know, we, sell a lot of water to that area. We don't sell it directly to Mendocino, but we sell it to the uh, the, the delivery trucks. Yeah. And then yeah. I think it was last year we had to, uh, or the year before we had to uh, stop selling the water. That was a big bummer. Yeah. So we, we don't want to have to do that again. Is there anything else you would like to add to this? 
Um, you asked a question about why, why when everybody else has failed because of all the, uh, the environmental out there. Carving out 30 or 40 acres out of that, I think it's five something, um, is not a real big deal. But, you know, we have had, we've met with Fish and Wildlife before we bought the property, their planning division, um, basically consultation meetings, making sure that, you know, up front, 30,000 foot view that they were okay with this, uh, which they seem to be. One of the meetings included the Native Plant Society for their input. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, gra- the Grassroots Institute, uh, I'm sure you're aware of them. They carry a lot of weight in the community. They, they've chimed in a little bit about, you know, finally something being done, being right out on that property. Uh, we've met with Fish and Wildlife, Lake and Stream Bed Alteration Division to discuss um, off-stream storage. We've met with LAFCO. Of course, that'll be about annexation. Um, they're going to require a CEQA document, most likely. Uh, we have a couple consultants working on botany studies and hydrology already. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't expect to utilize more than 30 or 40 acres. And some of the initial discussions that John and I've had in his office, and then I briefly brought it up at council when we talked about purchasing the property, was there's there's agencies and groups that want to take over the rest of that property. We don't we don't necessarily want to steward that property. I guess I guess we don't have the bandwidth or, or or the power to do that. It would be nice if somebody else came in. You know, kind of what I envision are um, walking and biking trails, uh, study groups on the uh, you know the pygmy kind of like a uh, demonstration forest kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I see frisbee golf courses out there. Um, foot traffic basically is what I see. Opening it up to low impact, that kind of stuff. I don't see quads and I don't see motorcycles. I, I think maybe the most intrusive thing we may ever see out there is a horse. Yeah, and that's you know that's really the legwork that we've done. We, we, we kind of mapped out a little bit where we wanted to land, but of course, you know, that, that could change based on what we find there. But we we believe that we've got a spot where we can do what we want to do and basically let some, cons, you know, conservancy group or somebody, the state even expressed an interest because there's that big bog out there. Yeah. Um, that, you know, that they've expressed an interest in purchasing to preserve that. And you know, we don't have golf course expectations. Um, we don't have OHV park expectations. Um, you know, I, my, my thought, and I don't know that it'll get done in in the next few years before I'm gone, but, um, you know, my kind of hope is the rest of it just gets opened up to the community for, you know, basically foot traffic and a little bit of recreation. That would be ideal because it's a big piece of property. Yeah, it's almost a square mile. Yeah, it's a big piece. And I think we paid one one point seven for it. Um, it'd be nice to get that money back in some sort of sale um, mm-hmm. and put it back into the water enterprise. But um, even at that for one point seven, um, I was really focused on the one point, the 30 or 40 acres and the three reservoirs being worth the one point seven for me. Mm-hmm. You know, 140 days of water is a lot of water. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot of water. It's It's resiliency, right? You know, hopefully we never have to shut off the village of Mendocino again. No. That was a hard decision. Yeah. You and know, you see, the, you see those people every day. And it made the New York Times. It did. It was, it was, it was hard, but you know, you have to, you have to start with the people to pay the bills to pay for the infrastructure. And that's really the decision that we had to make. Yeah. And, uh, but it was, fortunately it was short lived. It was, it was a lot of money. I think it, it was worth it, but it was a lot of money because, the, the water that Ukiah was shipping over was already treated. 
Yeah. And in that shipping, we had to retreat it. So then we ran it through our system um, and then back out to the trucks that I think we sell it at three cents a gallon or something like that. Yeah. You know, but, you know, we're one big community. Like I said, you can't go into harvest and not see those folks from down there. So it's, uh, <laughs> you know, you just, you want to do what's right. Yeah. And on a project this size, we can, I think we can incorporate and involve more than just the city of Fort Bragg on it. Well, we are out of time. I appreciate the work you're doing. and um, I appreciate your interest in this. Thank you very much. You're very welcome, Bernie. Have a great afternoon. Good, you too. Take care. That was Bernie Norvell, the mayor of Fort Bragg, speaking on the city's plans to construct three reservoirs. And speaking of the Grassroots Institute, let's go to Kerry Durkee, who is running a team that goes out every Wednesday on the Mendocino Headlands and eradicates invasive ice plant. This is the Heart Group. Kerry Durkee. Okay, Carrie Durkee here. I work with the Grassroots Institute, and part of our program is the Heart Group, which is Headlands Eradication and Restoration Team. We work on the Mendocino Headlands. Right now, we're re- removing ice plant. We work about two hours a week, and there's a, a dedicated following of about six people. And what we do is really... Uh, make room for the native plants to come back. So removing the ice plant gives the seed bank a chance to reemerge and uh, the native uh, plants come up. So these plants can actually be seen on our website if you look at the heart group, www.grassroots-institute.org and look for heart. A moment in public radio history, the world's first community radio stations emerged in Bolivia during a miners' strike around 1947. The miners' union had decided to use some of the emergency strike fund to pay for 27 local radio stations offering union members and their families access to the airwaves and opportunities for social benefits. 75 years later, even though community radio is as different as the people who make it, some elements are consistent almost anywhere. We are committed to community development rather than profit, providing access to the airwaves. If you're not yet a member of this station, go to kzyx.org. It is just too easy. Press the red donate button now. Thanks. You are listening to The Ecology Hour. I am your host, Chad Swimmer. Today we are talking about water, specifically the reservoir project the city of Fort Bragg is moving forward on. You heard Fort Bragg Mayor Bernie Norvell, and then you heard Kerry Durkee of the Grassroots Institute about a little weed pulling project that you could help us all with. Now we are going to go to my old friend and great inspiration, Teresa Schollers. Professor Emeritus Teresa Schollers, PhD, is an ecologist who has studied and lived amongst the towering trees, ubiquitous fungi, and sensitive plant communities of the Mendocino Coast for nearly 50 years. She has been a longtime member of and active botanist with the California Native Plant Society. She wrote the sections on Lupinus in the Jepson Manual, Flora of North America, and has been nearly single-handedly responsible for a large section of the Mendocino Coast's population's ecological knowledge, including my own. She presently is splitting her time in so-called retirement by doing plant surveys, preparing a book on lupins for publication, teaching for UC Berkeley and Mendocino College, giving dog obedience classes, and being a regular contributor to this show. 
Oh, wait, and not to be overlooked, she is also a loving grandma. Does she find time to sleep? That is a closely guarded secret. Teresa Schollers, thank you so much for joining us on the Ecology Hour again. And you talk to us about this 586-acre parcel that the city of Fort Bragg is considering acquiring. I can. Um, I've been involved with this parcel for quite a, a long time, basically. Uh, the first time when there was a golf course that was pr proposed. Um, the second time when an OHV park was proposed. The third time when a transfer sa um, station was proposed. So um, basically, um, it is a really interesting parcel, and I became very, very much more educated on the details of the parcel when the OHV parcel was proposed because I was involved with the Department of Fish and Game in uh, classifying Mendocino Cypress Woodland, aka Pygmy Forest and Associated Plant Communities, and that parcel seemed to have a lot, and since um, the board of the recreation center had not yet um, hired anybody to do another vegetation survey. We offered to go ahead and survey the 586 acres um, because it seemed from looking at it that it would have quite a few acres of interesting vegetation, especially uh, Mendocino Cypress Woodland. So, uh, we did that and uh, found that 89% of the 586 acres actually was uh, involved in, had 10 vegetation types that were all classified as being a sensitive natural community. And, and in order to be a sensitive natural community, basically you have to be very rare. You have to have a very small acreage um, in California and it needs to have some vulnerabilities in terms of sustainability, which when you have a very small amount, that's very vulnerable. So when Fish and Wildlife and a lot of volunteers, including State Parks and CAL FIRE and UC and CNPS, um, Fish and Game, all these different people got together to do this uh, large scale classification of all of the Mendocino Cypress Woodland which basically goes from northern Sonoma County to Fort Bragg, um, you know, about 5,000 acres of it. We um, did look at pretty much every inch of that 586 acres because it was so, so, um, so interesting. And it definitely had been logged. And when they were going to do the golf course, they, you know, started, they started uh, impacting it in terms of even putting in some, you know, holes, but, but still, even though it has a history of some logging and parts of it and roads running through and extensive OHV use, it still, it still is incredibly rare. And so um, in order to do anything on sensitive natural communities and in an area where there are rare plants, one would not only need to do um, a survey, which we have actually already done to the extent of where they are, but you have to look at mitigation, which is how how can you offset how can you offset impact on these rare plant communities? And when you don't have very much of this left, it's pretty impossible to find a way to offset developing it, um, which is why every project that's been proposed for there has eventually 
been um, chosen to stop. The actual board of the Mendocino Park and Recreation District, after a public meeting and testimony by many people, decided not to pursue the OHV Park. Um, the golf course was actually approved, but that ended up going belly up to my knowledge because of financial reasons. Um, the, I actually wrote, have written several letters about this particular parcel. Um, and when they, the, the city and county were looking at a transfer station, all I did is say that 89%, 518 acres of it are rare so that it might not be a good place to try a low cost thing to happen because it's going to cost a lot of money and may not be successful. Besides the fact, it's a county treasure. So that's kind of a little bit in the nutshell. If you want to ask me more questions, I'm happy to reply. Nearby and play within it, I know there are a lot of large populations of carnivorous plants. Yeah, carnivorous plants um, tend to be in areas here on the Mendocino Coast where there's sphagnum bogs. And so the carnivorous plants are over at what used to be called the Summers Lane sphagnum bog, which is, is adjacent to this parcel. Uh, now called the Schiller's Bog because my late husband and I were the ones who actually got a grant to protect it. Um, so there, there are carnivorous plants adjacent to it, but since we haven't seen sphagnum on the property, um, to my knowledge, there aren't carnivorous plants there. But just so that it's important to understand, actually, carn the carnivorous plants in California aren't rare. Um, and what is there is actually much more rare than carnivorous plants, but carnivorous Plants capture people's interests, whereas Mendocino cypress woodland doesn't tend to. Um, and what's unfortunate is like the, the Redwood Mendocino Cypress Association, which is one in which the, the redwood trees and the Mendocino cypress trees are similar in size. They're huge. Um, that there's less than a couple hundred acres left. And a good percentage of that is actually on this property. And part of it was actually cut down in order to make the first Summers Lane Reservoir, because at that point, that association had not been classified. So people didn't label it pygmy. So they said that there was no problems. And the mitigation was just to plant a few cypress trees, which um, you can't really, you can't really reproduce a vegetation type and community of plants and animals and fungi and insects by, by planting a few trees. So, um, if, if a proposal is made for that site to convert rare plant communities into a reservoir, you basically are completely taking a large percentage of a very rare community and not being able to mitigate it at all because you can't mitigate something that there's hardly any left. What a lot of people who I I speak with don't understand about the erosion of the pygmy is, is that the, these wounds are dependent on their, you know, their relative declination. And that as soon as a small amount of erosion starts, it, it's, it initiates a long-term process that, well, can you talk about that, please? Well, yes. Um, many of the plant communities out there that are really important are actually wetlands. And so, um, and in fact, it it is one of the reasons I'm sure that it is a site that somebody might want to look at, you know, capturing some of the water 
that might be there. The, the problem with that is once you start putting more roads and digging holes and changing hydrology, then you're impacting, you know, entire areas. And right now, this site certainly has roads through it that have eroded, you know, 10, 12, 15 feet in some areas. So, you know, what would be a wonderful thing to do in that area would be to actually um, look at erosion and try to work towards a plan towards um, stopping reducing erosion that is happening now, but um, that isn't really helped by a possible project of putting three reservoirs of, of lakes in, in, in the middle of these sensitive natural communities and basically taking them out. So, I mean, it, it, um, erosion is a natural process that in some areas is great for fertility. So that's where you actually have flooding that is good along river banks. But when we put people in there and around wetlands, what people want to do is they tend to want to drain them because they want to put their houses. And in those that area out there, a lot of homes have created a lot of ditching to drain the water away from their area where they're developed. And that that is really problematic. And in fact, the reason we were able to preserve the the Summers Lane Bog, which is filled with Mendocino Cypress Woodland, is that it holds the water and drains the water slowly into the Noya River. And we actually got $40,000 from um, salmon enhancement money because if you want to think about this, when you have these wetlands, they hold the water and it gradually releases it to a main salmon bearing stream. So we actually got a grant to protect this adjacent property on a NOYO enhancement grant for salmon restoration. So, you know, a lot of people aren't thinking about pygmy cypress and Mendocino cypress as having anything to do with salmon, but it's all connected. And it's all connected, especially when there are wetland communities. Thank you so much for this information and thank you for helping us understand the situation at hand. Risa Shoulders. You're welcome. You are listening to the Ecology Hour, and I'm your host, Chad Swimmer. We are now going to hear from Peter Bay, PhD. Peter is a coastal ecologist and botanist specializing in restoration, climate change, adaptation, and the management of coastal ecosystems, including beaches, dunes, tidal marshes, lagoons, and their connected adjacent marine and terrestrial ecosystems. He has worked on planning, restoring, managing, and regulating San Francisco Bay shorelines and wetlands for over 30 years, with recent emphasis on innovations for sea level rise adaptation and endangered species recovery in both urbanized and agricultural open space. Space Baylands. Peter Bay, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Good, thanks. So, in a conversation with the Mendocino Voice after their vote to approve the project, Mayor Bernie Norvell said he also feels the community has risen to the occasion by conserving water. Quote, the message is being heard because every time we ask for a certain level of conservancy, we get more than what we're asking for. 
Peter, you have many valuable thoughts on water conservation and alternatives to this project. Can you elaborate? Well, just to clarify, I think the, uh, the the project, quote unquote, is the acquisition of the land that's dedicated to um, one water supply alternative, which is the um, construction of a, yet another uh, reservoir. I, I don't think the project itself, that the, the reservoir project, has yet been designed or approved or evaluated. So uh, I think it's just the land acquisition that anticipates a project. And that I got lots of questions from that from from colleagues because normally um, when a project comes up, it goes through a sequence of um, feasibility studies and design and then approvals. And you know while that machinery is going on, uh, land acquisitions are are uh, pursued um, once you know you've got a project. But I think in this case, there was a, a proposal to acquire the land first. Um, I won't say speculatively, but uh, in anticipation of a project that was yet to be defined. It was, um, and, and we met with um, the city of Fort Bragg, and that seems to be the case that there is a resolution to acquire the land, um, which is a, a was formally um, considered for other purposes on on fairly sensitive natural plant communities. And um, we asked for details about the project and the sequencing of environmental reviews and assessments, and they weren't there yet. <laughs> so it's a little out of the ordinary sequence, and we're looking forward to hearing more about the actual project and not just the acquisition, because um, that, that would help us evaluate what would be um, a reasonable alternative for either the kind of project they're anticipating, which is a reservoir, or perhaps other kinds of projects that would um, meet the ultimate purpose, which is to increase a secure climate resilient water supply for the city. Well, we had spoken about getting in on the ground floor of this debate, and I was reading the article that you submitted to um, the Dorothy King Young Native Plant Society newsletter. The opportunity here is to provide environmental leadership for the larger comprehensive conservation vision first, rather than react to narrow engineering piecemeal solutions that we have to protest and litigate. We're always locked in oppositional mode. So, what would you what would you propose? Well, yeah, I, I think we would prefer prefer not to be in oppositional mode for a project, but that comes to the the, the starting point of whether you're beginning with um, a construction project for a selected alternative that has sort of skipped public review, or whether you're evaluating a project based on its ultimate purpose and you've considered a range of alternatives that may meet that purpose. And if the purpose is to provide secure water supplies during droughts, um, then I think you need to look at the total um, water use and not just home conservation. I, I, I appreciate the value of you know trying to get more conservation uh, to, as, a, as an alternative to water supply, but you need to look at the overall water use and wastewater stream uh, in, in Fort Bragg as we do in the rest of California. And as you probably know, statewide about half of domestic water supply, urban water supply, it goes to landscape purposes, landscape irrigation. Uh, on the coast, it's probably closer to 30%. And that does not require um, potable water. So, um, uh, you know, adding another reservoir would provide a, a supply of potable water, which then could be used for both domestic use, consumption, and you know, landscape irrigation. But in the San Francisco Bay Area, for example, where there is very high demand for water and there's uh, severe constraints from droughts, 
a lot of the water management agencies, which are sometimes divided between the water suppliers and the wastewater management and dischargers, um, they've devised ways of creating wastewater streams that end with recycled water rather than discharges into receding water bodies. So for example, uh, Palo Alto right now has so much demand for its recycled water for urban uh, landscaping, again, in coastal California, that's about 30% of total water use, um, that they can't meet all the demands. And that, that is also, I understand, is now becoming the case in parts of uh, Marin. And over time, the demand of for recycled wastewater for um, urban landscape irrigation purposes is expected to increase. And right now, as far as I know, all of the wastewater from Fort Bragg is discharged directly to the Pacific Ocean in the nearshore zone right next to the water plant. There is no recycling. There is only uh, secondary wastewater treatment, which means that um, though it is, um, you know, solids are removed and, and there are um, uh, there's some degree of water quality improvement, but the nutrients in that wastewater are going directly into the ocean, as you, as you probably know. Uh, elevated nutrients with warming ocean waters uh, contribute to the risk of harmful algal blooms. And as climate warms, a resilient climate strategy is not to keep discharging nutrient-loaded wastewater into a marine nearshore zone. Um, so an alternative for that approach is to either increase the level of treatment or to run secondary treated wastewater, which is what the plant now produces, through some kind of polishing system. And this is something that also is being done in the San Francisco Bay Area for about 30 years now, uh, constructed wastewater uh, treatment wetland systems like the one in Arcata, which has been operating for, uh, I guess, since the 1980s. Um, those produce water with new water sources that are, can be used for irrigation, that can cut into the demand for new water supplies, and they remove nutrients. So even if there is a discharge to the ocean, they would have very reduced nutrient loads. That's a systemic approach to you know, stepping back and looking at the overall water supply and wastewater discharge um, stream and try to figure out how you can alter that whole system so you don't keep putting more pressure on supply and uh, reservoir capacity. If you just keeping, if you just kept pressing that same button, you know, build another reservoir, build another reservoir. California, <laughs> well, we've we've had a history of trying to do that. Um, I think we kind of maxed out with with storage capacity um, in a lot of parts of the state. Um, there are environmental impacts associated with it. But that that pushback against you know having more reservoirs built, more dams built, um, I think has caused us to rethink technologies and strategies for uh, integrating wastewater treatment and discharge with our overall water supply um, strategies. Thank you. Uh, you worked on one prototype of a different type of treatment system, the Oroloma horizontal levee. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's uh, it, this is again in San Francisco Bay, where um, there is um, a very large wastewater stream that discharges into the center of San Francisco Bay. It's the um, East Bay Dischargers Authority, um, and it, their effluent stream goes to the Deepwater Bay as a uh, a way of preventing uh, accumulation of wastewater in the nearshore zone. So they're discharging into a, um, a the deeper bay where it's um, 
diffusely discharged in, in, in maximum currents as a, an approach to dilution as a solution to pollution. That's <laughs> sort of an older strategy. Well, one other approach is to run wastewater through wastewater treatment wetlands. Um, there are a number of them in the East Bay. There's one in Hayward. There are some in um, the Martinez area that have been running for several decades. But there's a lot of water coming out of San Francisco uh, Bay Dischargers, and some of it is still going into the Bay. Well, what we're trying to do is work ahead of the inevitable relocation of that pipeline. Um, and by we, it's not me. I'm, I'm a, a minor subconsultant on a, a much larger set of uh, engineering consultant teams. Uh, they're trying to reapply some of that wastewater stream to constructive environmental uses. Uh, and one approach is to filter it through gently sloping meadow-like wetlands. Instead of the treatment ponds, the open water systems you might be more familiar with, like the ones in Arcata, where it's, it's a free water surface with um, cattail marshes at the edges, there are other kinds of wetlands that are, look look like wet meadows, um, like the um, the peatlands in the Canadian Arctic. Well, those are actually very common in parts of Mendocino County, in, including the areas where they want to build um, the, this additional reservoir. These are sort of sedge marshes and sedge meadows. Well, you can run wastewater through the root systems just below the surface um, and enables the... Um, vegetation to form accumulated peat that sequesters carbon. It also helps trap um, and, and retain all the nutrients that would otherwise flow out to the, the um, receiving water body, in this case, the Pacific Ocean. So instead of having um, a, a liability of a waste to discharge, you get to do all kinds of public benefits like sequester carbon, retain nutrients, and, and um, reduce impacts on receiving waters like the near shore Pacific Ocean. Um, and that's, it was piloted. It worked um, better than expected for uh, removing nitrogen, which is uh, a nutrient of concern. It ended up, um, turned out it removes pharmaceuticals, which most industrial um, wastewater treatment systems are not very good at doing, removing, you know, hormonal medications or uh, anti an antibiotics. Um, most um, tertiary treatment systems are not very efficient at doing that. And it turned out the, the wastewater treatment through uh, constructed subsurface wetlands not only removed um, nitrogen, they also removed a lot of the phosphorus and they also removed um, a lot of the pharmaceuticals. So this may be uh, an expandable approach that improves water quality beyond its original intent. Um, but in any case, you know, there is no law that says you have to take all of your wastewater and dump it in the ocean. <laughs> and when you're looking at water supply um, uh, questions that default immediately to constructing yet another reservoir, there's, a, uh, I think, a reasonable public discussion Im implicit about, well, what are we doing with that wastewater? Could we use it for constructive purposes that would have multiple public benefits. And one of those other public benefits <laughs> that may be of interest to uh, Fort Bragg is that there are grants for this. I mean, most of the wastewater treatment wetlands that were um, originally constructed in the San Francisco Bay Area were done with EPA grants. Um, and if the, right now, um, you know, you're not going to get a coastal conservancy grant for uh, upgrading a, a wastewater treatment plant. But if there were a substantial component for habitat enhancement of newly constructed wetlands that increased public visitor use of, you know, watchable wildlife in a coastal setting and a headland, you know, 
the Coastal Conservancy actually has funded some of these treatment wetlands in San Francisco Bay, where they're in uh, you know, East Bay Regional Parks district lands that have uh, uh, visitor serving coastal uses. Uh, you can combine multiple funding streams when you have multiple benefit um, wastewater treatment systems. Anyway, I, I, I don't think that there's any single simple solution for long-term water supplies on the coast with extreme droughts, but there definitely is a potentially untapped um, resource in wastewater that is currently being treated purely as waste. And it's not a trivial amount. Um, again, uh, total water use in coastal California, about 30% is for irrigated landscaping. Uh, and that's uh, probably a lot more than one or two reservoirs uh, in terms of annual use. So this idea of a horizontal levy, is that something that you could put in in a place that's already a sensitive community or is it something like say in the, the Fort Bragg headlands, which are mostly invasive plants at this point? Well, first of all, a horizontal levy is just one little local landscape adaptation for San Francisco Bay. It was sort of a, a, a a name, a term of art that was applied to a multi-purpose structure that was supposed to be both habitat for the estuary and flood control and wastewater polishing. So the idea was to combine those three important urban estuary edge functions in San Francisco Bay. I don't think levees are very important in Fort Bragg. You're perched up on top. So I, I would just generalize that concept to uh, a constructed uh, subsurface wastewater um, treatment wetland. And that can't, I think what's relevant is that the horizontal levy approach at Oraloma was trying to replicate natural analogs of wetlands that it would have occurred in that landscape position. That was kind of new because most engineered wastewater treatment wetlands are kind of uh, they're workhorse marshes. You know, they're the same five common species um, used everywhere. They're, there's not a lot of emphasis on biological diversity or structure for wildlife habitat. But the nuance we applied was to try to fit it in the landscape and use native wetland plant community diversity, also aimed at encouraging the local wildlife. So it wasn't an imposed habitat artificially placed on the landscape. It was one that tried to blend in. And you, you probably know from other parts of the marine terraces, so south of Fort Bragg, there are lots of coastal swales, or there's, technically they're fens, and Teresa could talk about uh, fen wetlands on, on the coast, but um, these are usually low nutrient systems, so they're, they're hungry for nutrients applied. And there's no reason why, especially in, in indust, former industrial lands where there's, you know, hard packed surfaces that almost are like liners in their existing conditions. You know, that's ideal. Gentle slopes, hard packed surfaces, insensitive, degraded existing habitats. That's very much like what we used to build the pilot version of that horizontal levy over Loma. It was uh, uh, basically an industrial area that had been disused um, and had formed very weedy, uh, degraded habitat. So it was a good place to do an experiment. And I, I would think that there's almost no place to go but up on, again, former industrial lands uh, that, again, could, could be turned back into both useful habitat but without competing with other uses, like instead of having one compartment of a landscape dedicated to pure habitat and restoration and another one for water quality treatment and another area dedicated to um, water supply, you could probably integrate 
all of those multiple purposes very harmoniously and, you know, solve a lot of problems in a smaller area. I mean, that was part of the original ambition for constructed wastewater treatment wetlands like in Arcata. Um, I think we've come a long way <laughs> into those are those are the um, the, the pioneer efforts. Um, and now I think we have the ability to not only increase their efficiency, again, like the Oraloma project kind of outperformed itself, its goals for, for nutrient removal. And, and again, the unexpected result of cleaning up pharmaceuticals. Um, but I think we can also be a little um, more nuanced in the way we build habitats so that it would look just like a restored native habitat. And um, I would not um, underestimate how much watchable wildlife you can get in a well-designed coastal wetland. Um, Oraloma, again, this is in a, and it's kind of an industrial area where there's a lot of wastewater treatment plants. It's not, not a place you would normally go for bird watching, but um, that little patch uh, is pretty dense with wildlife. And that's been the case also for a lot of the other constructed uh, wastewater treatment wetlands. They, they are highly productive. And um, uh, again, one of the, other aesthetic benefits of the subsurface types, the ones that run as sort of shallow groundwater underneath, you don't smell them. Uh, there's, there's not a whiff of surface water to them. They're completely covered by vegetation. So there's no question about um, occasional malodorous uh, marshy smells that come from the, one, the, the wastewater treatment systems that, that um, run below ground. Well, and that smell is definitely an issue in Fort Bragg. Anytime yeah. there's onshore wind and you know we've got this jewel of a coastal trail that people love and they speed by the the water plant holding their nose yeah uh, that's that's why i'm i'm kind of biased towards subsurface treatment wetlands it's also just a matter of efficiency if you don't have any open water surfaces uh if it's a hundred percent dense microbial mats on root meshes, you have a lot more react, biologically reactive surface area for microorganisms to process all that water. So open water, I think it is kind of a microbial desert, although there's a lot of microbial activity in the water column. It's the root surfaces and the soil surfaces that increase the um, biologically active surface area that does all that water purification work. And that's why the water that comes out of um, um, uh, subsurface treatment wetland is so nutrient poor. Uh, it's been actually, just a little anecdote, uh, it, we designed the length for, of the um, wastewater treatment system at Oraloma um, on conservative standard estimates about how much uh, nutrient removal we expected per unit lengths turned out all of the nutrient removal was occurring in the first couple of meters. Um, wow. It was it was like a wall. <laughs> and so we realized the rest of the, 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 the later versions that are now um, in various stages of um, implementation, permitting and construction uh, in other parts of San Francisco Bay, we no longer need to design the whole thing for nutrient removal. It turns out just the upper 10, 20 feet is all you need to process that. And there are probably ways of increasing that efficiency further. Uh, I'll just mention one other local opportunity. Um, wood wastes, wood fines, sawdust is one of the best substrates you can do to feed the, the microbes that cause denitrification. It's a carbon source, it's their fuel. So one way of really amping up the nutrient removal capacity of these wetlands is to, uh, it's sort of like an anti-fertilizer. <laughs> you feed them sawdust. Uh, you can just slice out blocks of the marsh, install blocks of sawdust, and it 
roots grow in it and they just suck up the nutrients. So um, lots, lots of different ways of making local variations on this. But the, the overall theme without getting too nerdy about the detail, detail designs is that it's not single purpose. Uh, you know, I think the, the, the limitations we're going to have if we keep wastewater, water supply and habitat and recreation all in separate compartments, we're not going to just lose opportunities to integrate this in a, in a healthy environment, but you'll also lose funding opportunities. Um, when you can combine, this is what really motivated the move in San Francisco Bay to start integrating wastewater with habitat restoration. Uh, there's a limited amount of money out there for grants and to be competitive and to combine funding streams without compromising the functions, by actually enhancing them, um, bringing them together, you can consolidate funding sources and make things feasible that otherwise would probably not be feasible financially on their own. Try to look at this from the viewpoint of a Fort Bragg City Council member. And I think everything you're saying is great, but I still want to build a reservoir. And I still have this property that we've agreed to buy. Well, they still have it. And right now what they're saying is, is that the reservoir they're hoping to place, they haven't said exactly where, but hopefully in not the most sensitive part of that parcel. But one of the things they said that I found really um, jarring was is that they wanted to use the land to every inch of its capacity. Why should we not be thinking in terms of utilizing natural communities to every inch of their capacity? Well, it depends on what the capacity is and whether the capacity you're envisioning for it is, is um, a compatible use. Um, for example, the type of uh, marine terrace woodland that they're they were acquiring um, is, you know, a very very ancient soil type very low nutrients, highly unproductive. It's on that spectrum that Teresa can talk about more about, um, uh, you know, pygmy forest is the classic name. It's, it's a, a nutrient starved community. So it's not one where you would want to um, add a lot of resources that stimulate <laughs> productivity. If you're going to try to conserve it for its own natural values, then you know you wouldn't add fertilizer, you wouldn't add water, you wouldn't start fragmenting it and putting trails and roads through it. Uh, a conservation plan that's compatible with that type of landscape would probably have to work with its uh, natural processes, the way it way it um, deals with water, the way it deals with nutrients, and the species that are there. If you alter those, I think we all know what usually happens: invasive species start to track in along the trails where people go. Um, they follow the nutrients that, that uh, people and their pets bring. Um, drainage systems uh, that are broken up to accommodate um, either roads or trails start to degrade the systems. It's really, really hard to, um, to turn wildlands into parks unless they're naturally disturbed. This, this is not the kind of um, Mendocino Cypress woodland is probably not the kind of community that you can flex a lot and still maintain its integrity. Thank you. I have one more question and then we're out of time. But for many of us, many Mendocino Coast residents and even people I know who are environmentally aware, the most sensitive tree species here, the Mendocino Cypress, Bolander Pine, and the partially despised Bishop Pine, although I love them, they're, they're basically thought of as nuisances. And there's 
tens of thousands of them all over, yet they're considered very sensitive, endangered, threatened, listed. Um, these are just things that are getting in the way of people's dreams for their own property. How do we address this? How do we help people to understand that there's actually, there is value in this tree that's falling down all over? I don't know that you necessarily have to convert people's value systems in order to get productive conservation outcomes. Generally speaking, I never assume that is even going to be part of the strategy. I try to, you know, we're working in um, uh, urban landscapes in San, the San Francisco Bay Area, as well as the North Coast. I try to meet people where they are and uh, address their existing values um, and show where there are common interests um, in trying to conserve uh, parts of the remaining natural communities that we have, rather than try to shift their whole value system over, which is uh, a tall order and doesn't usually happen. Um, on the North Coast in particular, I think one of the opportunities we have is to show how uh, uh, a tourism-based economy, which I think we all, you know, whatever your political or economic theories are, um, I think everyone agrees that um, right now we are past the, you know, heavy timber mining era <laughs> in Northern California, and we are very much dependent on a tourism economy and, and making this place interesting to a wide range of tourists who want diverse visitor experiences, including wildlife and forest and educational aspects, which is exactly what national parks do and state parks do. Um, you know, we obviously don't have the capacity to turn vast areas into national parks and um, uh, in state parks. But look, the places in the, the Bay Area that get a lot of visitor use with a lot of local economic benefits are regional parks and local assets. And I think, um, you know, the, the commercial uses that are embedded in Fort Bragg definitely benefit out of not only conserving, but conserving, but marketing those natural resources. Um, if they're just sort of left derelict or converted to other uses unconsciously, and they're not, they're treated like they're liabilities. It's, it's kind of like wastewater, where if you perceive it as a liability, you try to get rid of it or convert it into something else. But if you recognize what you have, you recognize what its potential is as an asset, in this case, as a component for a tourism economy, and you can, you know, bill it as something worth seeing, something that's worth traveling to, to visit. An example would be, you know, Muir Woods. It's one of the most heavily visited redwood forest fragments in Marin County in the San Francisco Bay Area. I think people up on the North Coast would kind of shrug <laughs> to look at Muir Woods like, yeah, we got a lot of redwoods up here and they're bigger and they're not as heavily trampled and crowded. But Muir Woods is by any stretch a, a, an enormous tourist destination and the, the communities around it get a lot of business um, for people streaming to that location. If, you know, the, the, around the Fort Bragg area, we have great natural resources that are as scenic and interesting, but not well described and not well marketed as tourist destinations. Um, so they are treated like liabilities or things that interfere with resources that we think we want. Um, I, I think there's an opportunity to, again, tie those together, package them up, and show why the F Fort Bragg area is a really valuable tourist destination, not just for the beautiful immediate coast that 
people flock to, but there's stuff all through that landscape that's really worth seeing. And um, if if we kind of carve it all up and convert it to other industrial uses, like like uh, plastic lined reservoirs with fences around them, uh, you know, that's not a place anyone wants to visit. Um, I don't know if you've seen what the reservoirs look like, but they're covered with floating plastic balls and they look like concrete swimming pools, um, not a tourist destination. Thank you for spending the last hour with me, Chad Swimmer, here on the Ecology Hour. I hope you learned as much as I did making this show. As always, the views and opinions expressed are those and only those of myself and my guests, and not those of the management or staff of any station that chooses to air this show. This show was produced on Audacity's open source software for sound editing by a small staff in an even smaller studio on the unceded stolen land now known as Casper, California. It originally aired on KZYX and Z, listener-powered community radio from Mendocino County and beyond. It comes to you via the invisible but carbon intensive magic of the internet. If you want to share this show with a friend or listen to any of the back episodes of any of my shows, go to www.disquietmedia.blue. If you would like to comment on anything you heard here, email me at cswimmr at gmail.com. I would like to pass on some good news for listeners of my shows that I have affiliated as one of the partners with Cloud Forest Institute. Check them out, Cloud Forest Org. This will allow us to get more support to improve our equipment and sound quality and give us access to a new and larger network than we've had yet. Tomorrow in the show, we are going to talk a little bit about the great work that Cloud Forest Institute does. See you next time. <laughs>